Okay, we are live in the Brigino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Uh, we are here tonight with the New York Giants Preservation Society packing the clubhouse, and Josh Prager, the author of The Echoing Green, published by Vintage, and it's now somewhat vintage. It's, uh, it's about six, six, seven, years, six old. years old. Um, it's a fantastic book. I haven't read it in about six years, so I'm just going to start out with a couple of quick questions, and then we're going to have our audience join Josh. Josh is going to just tell some stories, but just to get us kind of going, if you could just tell the group the echoing green, the title, where, where, does that, where did that come from? Okay. First, I want to say, before I answer the question, I really want to say what an honor it is to be here. Um, I... Uh, you know, other guys, they write books, and their groupies are young, beautiful women. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, you know, these are the people who appreciate my book. But kidding aside, it is a real honor. There's nothing an author wants more than to be read. And um, I truly appreciate the interest in the book. And what Gary mentioned earlier, that he uh, appreciated the book and turned it into a trial for, how, what, fifth graders? Fourth and fifth, fourth grade, and fifth grade, grade class. That literally was the highlight of the entire 10-year experience from, from beginning the research to having the book come out. Um, because when you had young kids who were grappling, thanks to their teachers, sort of work with the issues of the book, and... I understand how reflexively people who root for a team like the Giants might say, hey, what the fuck do we need some guy pointing out that they stole signs for, especially our most special moment, get the hell out of here. But if you step one, if you step back and then actually read the book, the book is really a celebration of the home run and certainly of the men. I love Bobby Thompson above all else. I came to know him. Rarely do you meet someone who's such a mensch. And, uh, and he, he encapsulated the issues of my book in, in a way that was beautiful and clear for these kids. And for me to see them wrestle with fairness and what that means was very, very special. And also Steve, who had me out to his group out in Arizona and, you know, just has introduced my book and me to some very special people. It's really an honor for me to be read and appreciated and, and, and to be here. I, I can't have... You can, you know, what a perfect setting. Not only that, but somehow you all arrange for the Giants to be in game two. The best one is this. It's a Willie Mays right there. The only thing that's sad is my my team, the Yankees, didn't hold up their end of the bargain. Otherwise, we'd have a 1951 Redux. That would be that would have been amazing. The last thing I'm going to say before I answer your question is, um, I have. If you if you look at my book, this is the this is the um, paperback by Vintage and the hardcover by Pantheon. If you look in the back, there's literally a hundred pages of a bibliography and notes. There's four thousand endnotes there. That's a lot of research. And I sort of felt that if you're going to tell people that things aren't exactly as they remember it, then you better know what the hell you're doing. You better back it up. So everything that is in here is proven and shown to be true, and all of the notes. Um, I have the books and the videos and the photographs. I, I came to have an incredible collection about the team that you all grew up rooting for. And I have all of my stuff. I live in New York, so I don't have a huge apartment. In, in storage in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. <laughs> and what I want to say is, if ever you want another one of your gatherings to sort of just watch 
footage, for example, the polo grounds that no one has seen. I found crazy things, TV shows and movies and stuff like that. I'd be delighted to bring it back for you. Or very rare photographs, things like that, that the player's family shared with me. That would really be, I'd be thrilled to sort of bring that back for you. Okay. Now, in terms of the, uh, the title of my book, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I wrote the book, it was the first book I wrote. I had been a feature writer at the Wall Street Journal for a bunch of years. And um, I, I was new to the world of writing books. And the book took me six years. And you learn a lot of things when you're diving into this. And one of the things I learned was how a book is sold and how important covers are and publicity and titles of a book. Well, they wanted to call the book The Stolen Pennant, just so you know. And I said, no, that is accentuating the wrong syllable. Like, I don't want that. I don't want theft and thievery and stealing of signs to be the, the, the title that is not what the book is about. And so they were annoyed at me, and I said, I don't care. I wrote the damn book. You know, I say no. And so what, what the book was about for me was about, I remember someone asked me about this, and I don't think you can find a more obnoxious thing than an author quoting himself, but I'm about to do that. <laughs> I said that the, in terms of the stealing of signs, the book is not about the debatable effects of the signs on play, but the undeniable effects of it on the two men, on Thompson and Branca. In other words, even if this didn't help them at all, and we could talk about that a little later, what mattered to the players was that they had a secret and that they couldn't talk about it. It bothered Bobby Thompson a tremendous amount, to the point that he was one of the most honest men I've ever met in my life. He did not ever mention this to his wife, which was a difficult thing for him. And when he did, when my article came out in the Wall Street Journal, and he went on WFAN the very next day and spoke to Chris Russo, a big Giants fan, the first thing he said was, I feel like I got out of prison. That's what he said. So, and then he felt very unburdened by that. Anyway, so the moment for me, it's obviously called the shock heard around the world. And I always thought that this moment has echoed through time. It's reverberated through time. And so the, the, the title, The Echo in Green, it comes from a poem. Actually, if you give me the hardcover for a second. It comes from a poem by William Blake. The beautiful poem. And the poem is printed in the front of the hardcover. It's not in the soft cover. We put the box score in the soft cover in the front of the game. And here you see this is an actual beautiful etching that William Blake did of, of this poem that he wrote. And you actually see people with a bat and a ball. And then you have this poem there. And what the poem is about, it's all about, it's all about, it's from a book he wrote called Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. And it's all about um, the loss of innocence. And it's all about how um, when we get older and we look back on things, we sort of, I mean, this is actually perfect for all of you. You know, in your minds, I imagine, how many of you were at the Polo Grounds? Okay, a lot of you. You don't know how much I envy you. I, 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 I traced back the history of your stadium that you love to the time when the Native Americans owned the <laughs> land. Literally, hundreds of years. I got the, the land deeds. I became obsessed with the Polo Grounds. And so I wish... I wish to God I could have been there just once. Um, but it's about people thinking back to their childhood and thinking back to a ball field and playing ball there. So it's a very beautiful poem, and it has three stanzas. And I took one phrase from each of the three stanzas, and I, and I named, the book is divided into three parts. 
and I named each of the parts after one of the phrases. No one has ever noticed that. And um, <laughs> actually, and not only that, I inverted them. So it's, they don't correspond to the first, second, and third stanzas. These are the little things that authors do. You know, you really care about your words. And so I'm glad you asked me about that. Um, I'm going to quickly read the poem. I've never done that out loud because it's a very beautiful poem. Let us not, this is a very highbrow gathering. We're reading William Blake. You thought you were going to talk about the Giants, but whatever. The sun does arise and make happy the skies. The merry bells ring to welcome the spring. The skylark and thrush, the birds of the bush, sing loud around to the bells' cheerful sound while our sports shall be seen on the echoing green. Old John with white hair does laugh away care, sitting under the oak among the old folk. They laugh at our play and soon they all say, such, such were the joys when we all girls and boys in our youth time were seen on the echoing green. By the way, the frame, such were the joys, the very famous phrase, it was, I think George Orwell used it too for his, um, his biography, his autobiography. Till the little ones weary, no more can be married, the sun does descend and our sports have an end. You know, ballparks get destroyed. Round the laps of their mothers, many sisters and brothers, like birds in their nest, are ready for rest and sport no more seen on the darkening green. That was written in 1789. And so a lot of people, even a guy like William Blake, saw sports as a great metaphor for, for life. Um, what I'm going to do is just tell you a few stories, and then I'm not going to speak a long time at all. I would love to just answer any questions you may have. If you don't have any questions, I can keep talking. <laughs> so, okay. What I'm, my book came out in 2006. I started as a... Um, Writing about this was very special for me. I was a diehard baseball fan growing up. My dad um, was a diehard Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So the moment that was your happiest moment of your childhood was the worst moment of his childhood. He cried his eyes out. I think my grandfather, who's 94, cried too. And he was a grown man, and uh, he was devastated. And so, you know, I knew that baseball was important. It wasn't just, um, it wasn't just something we enjoyed. It was important. And... And um, I've always loved the game. And I got a job um, at the Wall Street Journal answering phones. I worked my way up. I became a reporter. And after three years, I got a very special job there where they said you can write whatever you want about anything, and it'll go on the front page. They said, because I was good at writing about, I was good at writing feature stories. I was horrible at writing about business and covering mm -hmm. shit. They just let me do this because this <laughs> is what I was good at. And the very first... Um, article I wrote. I heard a rumor from Barry Halper. Barry Halper was a minority owner of the Yankees who was famous for collecting sports memorabilia. As a side, sad note, after he died, it came to light that he had um, exaggerated a lot of the sort of historical claims of his things. Very sad. It's hard for me to understand why a person would do that. His collection was so remarkable. Why, like, embellish it? But he did. He lied about a lot of things and upset a lot of people. But he was nice to me. I bought one item of his at an auction. It was all I could afford. And I called him to let him know that this special item had landed in the right hands. I had a spinal cord injury when I was 19 years old. That's why I use a cane. So disability is a big part of my life. Baseball is an enormous part of my life. And journalism is a big part of my life. Well, he had one item that concerned all three things. It was wild. It was when Lou Gehrig um, started to not be able to play well anymore. Jimmy Powers famous sports writer, I guess the Daily News, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Wrote an article speculating that the reason the Yankees were playing so poorly was because they had somehow caught his illness, whatever it was. 
This infuriated Gehrig. He was a proud man, even though he was quiet. And he said, you have to print a retraction. They, the anti sued uh, the paper, and they settled out of court. And what I bought was Gehrig's last signature. He, he, signed the, he signed this document. And I saw it as a really powerful, defiant thing. And uh, that his wife actually had to help him hold the pen. And, uh, and this was, thankfully, not one of the things that um, uh, Barry Halper had, had invented. It was real. Um, anyway, uh, he mentioned to me the rumors that the Giants were stealing signs. And, and he said to me, I said, do you think it's true? He said, no. I said, why not? He said two reasons. One, Ralph Frank is the one who told it to me. Clearly, he has a vested interest in thinking it's not, that the team was cheating because he was the loser. And second of all, he said, it's baseball's most famous moment. It would have been proved by now. And you know what? It was 49 and a half years after the home run. And I said, well, why not? People always say, oh, wow, Josh, it's amazing that you can dig up all these secrets from things that happened so long ago because that's what I do, not just about baseball. And the truth is, it's not amazing. It's actually a lot easier because what happens is when 30, 40, 50 years have gone by, people are ready to talk about stuff that they haven't been ready to much earlier, just like Thompson was. And, um, and also, archives open up things like that. Thompson... He started speaking to me. We met him. We met. I met him at his church on a Sunday afternoon, um, and we went back to his house. Within one hour of our speaking, he was literally crying, and he was telling me these things that he wanted to talk about. Anyway, I wrote the article, and um, and when it came out, it was very nice for me for one thing. Thompson and Branca, who had the the closeness of their relationship had been greatly exaggerated over the years. They had a lot to do with each other because they had become sort of a dog and pony show in some ways. They were always singing a song that they had sung together at the Baseball Writers Association of America dinner a few months after the home run. It had actually become so so well-known so quickly that they then sang it on the Ed Sullivan show. But they had a very difficult relationship, and it's remarkable. Having spent six years with these two men, I can tell you I know them very, very well. Thompson and Branca, if you met them, if you came from outer space and you didn't know who won and who lost, you would be sure that Branca had won and Thompson had lost. <laughs> Because Thompson was so humble and self-deprecating to a fault, and Branca was so proud and so brazen, it didn't make sense, really. But that was the key to their relationship. They wouldn't have been able to survive otherwise. If I'm a winner and you're a loser and I act like I won and you act like you lost, we're going to get together once, and that's it. It's not going to be pleasant for either man. But they had sort of a remarkable relationship, and they took, but it wasn't honest because... Thompson had something that bothered him. Whether or not you think it helped them or not, it's another issue. It bothered him tremendously. And, and Branca found out about the stolen signs in 1954 from his roommate Ted Gray when he got traded to the Tigers. Gray had heard about this from a guy named Earl Rapp. Anyone remember Earl Rapp? Earl Rapp was let go from the Giants in 51. The guy he was replaced with was Henry Shens. Okay? No one had heard of Henry Shens, not even like his family, until I wrote about the guy. And it turned out that he'd had a telescope, which I actually brought here. I brought the exact replica of the telescope, so you can see what they used to, uh, to steal signs. Anyway, um, and, and Earl Rapp had told this to Ted Gray, and Ted Gray found himself rooming with Ralph Franca. So he, he tried to... Here's this little telescope. It's a Wallensack telescope. You can pass it around, and we can talk about that later. Here. So, um, and Earl Ray told this to um, Ted Gray. It's not going to work at night. Um, and, um, and, and he told this to Branca, and it turned out to a backfire. Branca became very, very angry. Over three years, very religious. 
Christian man. As an aside, did anyone see the article I wrote in the New York Times that he actually was from a Jewish family? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the, this game is like the gift that keeps on giving to me. Keep, it's my beat. It's bizarre. Um, anyway, and so it ended up making Branca a very angry man. And from 1954 until 2001, that's a lot of years. That's 47 years. They didn't once talk about the stealing of signs. The morning my article came out in the Wall Street Journal, Branca phoned Thompson. They had a very good rela- a very good conversation about it. And their last few years, albeit a little more complicated, was honest. And both men told me that they were happier for that. Anyway, what I'm going to just tell you now, and then we can just open it up to questions, is then my, my that was 2001. The book came out in 2006. Um, if, you, if you have looked at it, you know how detailed it is. If you haven't yet, you'll, you can pick it up and look here and see. It's a very detailed book. And so I thought I was done. 2006, there would be nothing left for me to say. Well, it's kind of funny because in the, in the six years since, every now and then, you know, it was an honor for me. People, um, I, they associate me with that game. And so when there are related things, they come up, I get in touch, they get in touch with me and I learn more things. So one example, again, is that Ralph Breika was... Um, his mother was a Jewish woman who um, left Europe, came here, and then became a very religious Catholic. And that's germane because it was it was it was Branca's Catholic faith that helped him tremendously deal with this difficult thing. He talked about that a lot. It was also something that Thompson really respected. That was one of their bonds. Um, so that was one thing that came out afterwards. I didn't I didn't realize it when I was writing the book. Another thing that came out, which is that. There's a the very famous, you know, there there was, for years, people only knew about one photograph of the home run. Um, this famous shot, you know, this is part of it. Um, everyone knows that photograph. And then I found another photograph of the home run that's on the cover of that book, actually, where you can actually see the center field clubhouse in there, which is really interesting, because that's where Herman Franks was at the time. It's interesting when you then see the celebration in the newsreel of everyone celebrating the home run at home. Herman Franks is not there because uh, he was in center field. And what's fascinating is when you then listen to the audio tape after the game, and he was very, very drunk, and you hear he says some fascinating things that betray what he was doing about ten minutes before. Um, um, oh, what I want to say, so, um, that this famous, famous photograph that's been reproduced literally hundreds of thousands of times, go on eBay, it's everywhere, and it's been signed. That's what Thompson and Branca signed for... 40, 50 years, nobody knew who took the picture. And I was giving a little talk after my article came out at the Yogi Berra Museum. And a little tiny man came over to me named Rudy Mancuso. And he said, I took that picture. And I said, great. Do you have any proof? And he said, no. Well, one of the things that maybe separates me a little bit from other reporters is that only intrigued me more. Most people might say, all right, buddy, you know, yeah, sure you took the picture. Well, I'm like, why is this guy lying to me? He's a tiny little man. He's not lying to me. He's, he, he said he took the picture. I believe him. So I said, well, how can we figure out how we prove that you took the picture? And long story short, he said he brought this big camera there. He only had two exposures back then. He told me how it was that he came to click the moment Thompson swung. But the previous shot, he said he took a picture of some of the Yankees who were sitting right next to him in the upper deck. I said, who was there? Hank Bauer and some other guys. I called Hank Bauer. I said, were you at the game? Yes. Where were you sitting? He told me exactly where this guy... I was like, he's telling the truth. I know he's telling the truth. So it took me um, a few years 
but he said, he finally remembered there was one little proof of it. And the proof was he had taken um, the, the bulbs of his, of his camera, um, used him in an, at the company that had the bulbs of his camera, used him in an advertisement. Okay? Um, and I was able to find that advertisement just before my book went to print, and I was able to um, write about him, and that was very nice for me. You'll see why I'm telling you this. What ended up happening was, my, so he's mentioned near Rudy Mancuso. This was very, very exciting for him. That was the proof I needed. He then carried my book around with him everywhere. He was a little old man who didn't have a lot going on in his life. He didn't have his teeth. He, he was a sweetheart, but he, he hadn't, he'd had a difficult life. And everywhere he went, he said, see this book? I'm in this book. Look. And he turned to the page and showed them. I then didn't speak to the man for five years. And he calls me out of the book. Hey, Josh, it's Rudy. As if we'd spoken yesterday. <laughs> I, I might not know another Rudy. I said, hi, Rudy. What's going on? He goes to me, I found the negative. I said, what? I kept saying you need to find that negative. I found the negative. I, I said... I'll be right there. <laughs> Don't move. I get there, and sure enough, he's holding this beautiful original negative, a large negative. I said, Rudy, this is very, very valuable. Do you know how much money this is worth? No, what's this? I said, it probably sells for about $100,000. It's an original negative of one of the most famous sports photographs ever taken. I said, we have to get this in a safe. You need a lawyer, etc., etc." Okay, I had no idea. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> So I got him a lawyer, a Giants fan who did the work pro bono. We spoke to a guy that he wanted to provide for his kids. He'd had no money all his life. It was an amazing story how he found the negative anyway. We set him up, and just when, after he signed this legal thing, he died the next day. And he died a happy man. He knew he was providing for his two boys. And I wrote an article about this in the Wall Street Journal called (coughs) The Man Who Shot the Shot Heard Around the World. If you want to read it, you can go to my website. It's just my name, joshuaprager.com. Click on articles and more articles, and you'll see it right there. And if you don't know how to figure it out, email somebody, and we'll get it to you. Anyway, and that was beautiful. It's sort of, you know, another story that sort of came out. And this is what I wanted to read you. The only guy who was involved in the stealing of the signs who didn't want to talk to me, truly didn't, the only one who was, integrate, who was integral to the stealing of the signs that didn't want to talk about it was Herman Franks. And he, w- he was very good. He was good to me. He invited me into his home. He talked about everything else. He talked about DeRocher. His favorite guy in the world was DeRocher and Willie Mays. Those were his two guys. He provided financially for Willie Mays. When, when Willie Mays was down and out, he basically just let him invest in some of his real estate, made Willie a lot of money in Utah, really took care of him. And very successful, very smart guy, real tough guy. Bob knew him. He was not a man people liked. Um, even on his own team, he was tough. When he was a manager of the Cubs, he used to shoot a lot of tobacco. He would shoot, he would spit out his tobacco onto the shoes of the reporters in the front row. He was a tough man. Anyway, but he was nice to me, but he didn't want to talk about the stealing of signs. And I, not for, like, you're, you're the first people I'm ever going to tell this to. Because I said, I'm not writing about this. I said, but I called him each year. I said, you ready to talk about it? No. You ready to talk about it? No. One year he says to me, yes. I said, oh my God. So I flew out there just for fun. He died 19 days after our conversation. He died right away. He was ready right at the end of his life. And this is what he said to me. So I go to his house, and um, he lived in a gorgeous house, and his wife was beautiful, truly beautiful, a woman in her 80s who was 
striking looking. This woman, Amneris Lorenzen, Amy, named after a beauty from uh, like a Puccini opera or something. And he'd married her. She was much younger than he had been when they got married. Um, And she was a lovely woman. The first time, just as a little funny thing, the first time when I was writing the article and I went out to interview him, I, I, I finally, I'm asking him about 51, and then I say, so, Herman, um, you know, can we talk about the stealing of signs? No, no. And I said, you know, a lot of the players are telling me you were the guy who was out there. That's bullshit, you know. And she goes, oh, Herman. And that, he wasn't, he shot her a look. And I thought she was going to kill over and die. So she was ready to talk about it. He wasn't ready to talk about it. Anyway, I'm out there. This is March 11, 2009. So, three and a half years ago. Um, okay. So, he talked to me about everything but not, not the stealing of signs. And so now I was there and he says to me, listen, um, let me tell you the story. And he tells me the story. He was finally ready to tell me the story. So, he told me something I didn't know. DeRocher had been kicked out of a game in the middle of 51 and he got banished. You know, he had to take the long walk out to the center field clubhouse and he goes into his clubhouse and he finds himself stuck in his office and he sees binoculars there that are 50 power 50 power the thing I'm passing around you if you pull out the eyepiece it has different powers there and you can see um, I don't remember actually I do discuss in the book which power they use I took that telescope to a place called Sky and Telescope Magazine and I said I'm not allowed to ask, I can't tell you why I'm asking you this but can you look at fingers that are 500 feet away and they're like it's perfect and they explained to me why <laughs> from a scientific point of view anyway so DeRocher's out there and he looks through these things and it was like a eureka moment he could see the catcher's fingers perfectly and he then his right hand man on the team was Frank's he tells this to Franks right away. And this is Franks telling this to me. wouldn't tell me when I wrote my book, but he tells it to me now. And then he says, um, oh, and the funny thing was, he says he wouldn't say in the telling me of this story that he was the one who was out there. He said, and somebody was out there. So even at the very end, he wouldn't say it was him. As you'll see, it had to be him because he's talking about something where there's only one person in the room and the room is locked. Um, <laughs> anyway, but he smiled and I said, that's fine. So he said, DeRocher, then what I wrote about, they, they have, uh, there's an angry, the Giants lose on July 18th, DeRocher gets very angry, they have a meeting on July 19th, a rainy day, and he and Franks go around the room saying, we're going to start doing this, who's in? And it was a rhetorical question. They, they wanted everyone in on this, and, and the way, by the way, I was able to pinpoint the very day of that meeting, which was very important to me, so I could know exactly when the stealing of signs started great stroke of luck for me when I spoke to everyone on the team just by chance Al Corwin the pitcher joined the team that hour he joined the team that very hour that was the first time he was ever with the team and I was then able to look up what day he joined the team and I knew it was July 19th anyway so Frank said what happened was that the fellow out there who was then charged with this which was him Herman Franks he he told me that the fellow out there moved one of Leo's bookcases toward the window so that he could rest the binoculars atop it and spy it without jiggling it. He recalled Chadwick. Chadwick is the name of the electrician I wrote about. He remembered the guy. He loved Chadwick. And he volunteered to me that he admired him above all, the electrician who died without spilling the beans to his family. 
So in my book, I wrote about Chadwick. Chadwick was my favorite character to write in the book. He was an electrician who loved the Brooklyn Dodgers. You're going to have to speak about this because I'm outing him. He liked the Brooklyn Dodgers, but he worked for the Giants, just like this guy did. He loved the Brooklyn Dodgers, but he worked for the Giants, and it was he didn't care. The Dodgers were so far ahead of the Giants at 13 and a half games. He says, fine, big deal. I'm going to help the Giants cheat. What do I care? My guys are going to win. Anyway, he, they, of course, right after he set up the buzzer system, he collapsed on the subway in the Pelham Bay local. Turns out he had inoperable cancer. He's watching the, the Dodgers lose and the Giants win. He, he broke down in tears when Thompson hit the home run and he died a month to the day later. And he wouldn't tell anyone about it. And, and uh, Franks loved him for that. He was a tough guy. He, he, he didn't like anyone to talk. It was like the omerta of, um, of the mafia. Anyway, he said that the fellow out there and DeRosha worried that they'd be discovered. And so they moved the operation back from the window into Leo's dark bathroom. Okay. Then, a parenthesis, I remember I was writing this in an airport, um, ready to fly back to New York, and I said, Herman just phoned me as I wrote that last sentence, asking me how old I was. Why, I asked him. He wanted to know, quote, how I got so smart. And he quote. <laughs> we had a nice conversation 15 minutes earlier. He called with his lovely wife, Amy, to thank me for my visit. I really like Herman. He has his principles, the Omerta, but is generous with me and enjoys our reminiscences. Anyway, yes, the spy sat in a dark bathroom. And, said Herman, the binoculars soon gave way to the telescope. That you guys, okay? And he told me where they got the telescope at a shop that was operated by a friend of Freddie Fitzsimmons beside Rockefeller Center. All right. All right. Then, um, and he tells me this story. The telescope was so powerful that the fingers alone filled its field of vision. But the fellow would then, having relayed the sign, tilt the scope to see the eyes of the batter. Herman demonstrated how they did this with a righty batter and a lefty batter, so that when the batter glanced toward right center field for the sign, they would know that they had taken the sign. So he wanted to know if they were looking up to the bullpen to see if they would use it. Herman made it clear that Bobby clear that Bobby wished to hold on to the narrative that was pleasing to him. He asked me to recount Bobby's waffling. Bobby had said to me, I'd have to say more no than yes when he took the sign. This upset him. Bobby was a wimp, he called him, in the way that Chadwick and he were real men. And then he goes on and he tells me, still he liked Bobby, his sensitivity be damned. He told me a story of how Leo, of how he and Leo and Fitzsimmons went over film with Bobby of his, with, of his batting, and Bobby noted to them that his brother Jim had said the same thing. This was an absurd thing to Herman, in other words, that a non-ball player would be telling them what to do. He was making clear, though, that he understood this humble, awkward home run hero, and he also made clear that he... No, the spy had seen Bobby's eyes shift toward the stolen sign just before the home run. Amazing. Herman died 19 days later. Anyway, so it's you know the home run is for me sort of alive, and the, the it's it's beautiful for me. The last the last really sort of integral part of it um, is Ralph Franco, who's still living, uh, and. Um, when he dies, there I feel like the real obviously there's still some ball players left, a bunch, but I feel like the the moment really then has passed into history, which is why I think this is so important. I don't know if it was Gary or Steve who said you really need to, you know, you keep a place alive, and I, I really feel very strongly about that. Um, so anyway, you know, ask me anything. I could tell you about the ball players or anything you like, um, and uh, 
Barry, you know, ask me. Yeah, just Bob. a quick. Uh, <coughs> I read the book six years ago, yeah, and it's a scholarly work. Well, it's thank beautiful. you. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate and, and what it. What is Josh Craig doing now? Uh, very briefly, I have a book coming out in a few months. It's the first time in my life I ever wrote about myself. It's a little book about identity, about disability, and baseball is a huge part of it. That'll come out in a few months. Um, and my next book, that's an investigative book, has to do with Roe vs. Wade, the abortion case. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, it was a runner on second base. Yep. And usually, when there's a runner on second base, the signs become much more complicated. No, the runner's on first and third. No, he's right. Second base. Why do you lock was on second? Yeah. yeah. So. With the complicated signals, were they able to steal those signals as well? Yes, it's a good question. Whitey Lockman. Whitey Lockman. Whitey Lockman told me. Whitey Lockman. What a great guy. Uh, he was also the straightest arrow. Really, you know, there are guys on a team who are tougher. Like Alvin Dark was a tough guy. Wes Westrom was a little wily, even though I loved speaking to him. Uh, Whitey Lockman was one of these straight arrow, just like Bobby Thompson, straight arrow mention a man. I don't know, you knew them personally, yeah. so you can speak to that. Anyway, he told me that in terms of the regular signals that they had, forgetting when they were stealing signs, like let's say they'd be on the road, you peer in, and if you can't read the sign, they had a, he would swipe his belt buckle. He let Bobby Thompson know, whether or not Bobby Thompson was looking at him, he let him know that he couldn't get the sign. Back then... There were only seven other teams that you played, right? There were eight teams in a league. You played them an enormous amount of times. And Herman Franks, a former catcher, was very good at stealing the signs and knew, in addition to the signs, what they went to with the guy on second base. And um, guys talked to me in great detail. I, I probably wrote about it for five old pages in there, what they did when there was a runner on second base. So that was not um, an impediment to them stealing the signs. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't even think he's so much of the complexity of the time for the run yeah. on second base, but the speed that it takes from the time. The let me let me ask you that. I know what you're saying. Nails it, gets it to the bullpen, yep. and the bullpen relays it to home plate. Let me tell you how how we do that. We don't just have to talk about stealing signs. In 1949, there were two reporters at the Washington Post who did an interesting piece that was perfect for me when I found it. They calculated how long it took between pitches. Okay, what was the average amount of time between pitches? And the answer was 11 seconds. Okay? So, a long time. 11 seconds. Right? No but that's idea. not the time that they got the sign. Correct. And got it to the bullpen, got it to the air. Correct. It took a lot less than that. Correct. And, and what I went through was, so Herman Franks, the second the sign would go down, would hit a buzzer, a button, that rang a buzzer in the bullpen, the right field bullpen, and they had several relayers there. It was usually Sally Bars, who was the only one who really um, hinted at this over the years and alluded to it and pissed off all of his teammates. He was a chirpy guy. And he then would toss a ball, let's say, or sit still, they have it. And it sounds crazy, it took two or three seconds for them really? to do this. Yeah. And they talked to me about it. Literally, two or three seconds. And so, what, what's interesting also is, and I didn't get into this, I was like, it's bad enough what I've done for 1951. You can speak to this. Al Corwin told me that they did this in 1954 as well. That was my question. Um, How long after 51 did this go on? Well, you know what happened? Does anyone remember Al Worthington? Sure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. do you guys know that story? Yes. I wrote about it in here. He was a religious Christian man yes. who became a born-again Christian at a Billy Graham event. Yeah. 
And he decided that this is despicable. And he marched into the office one day and said, this is not going to go on while I'm on the team. So he was not on the team for much longer. But they actually stopped while he was on the team. What year was that, Dion? You know, I don't have it in front of me. It's 52, 53. Oh, it happened after that. Yeah. It happened in 54 when I was Right, so, sorry. He was there in 54, it went on. That's when he found out. I, I meant it was a year or two after they won. So it was 55, 56. Do you and they got rid of him right away. I can look it up in here. Do you know who took Herman Francis' place in the clubhouse? Joey Amalfitano. Right. Yes. I didn't write about it at all. I didn't. I was like, I've ruined one thing. I'm not ruining anything else. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah. Herman Frank was a coach. Yeah. I had to coach that. Exactly. Question: Did they do this every home game from July 19th on? And were some of the ba- were there batters who didn't want to know what was coming? Whitey Lockman truly did not want to know, and not for ethical reasons. Um, maybe for those two. I don't mean to besmirch the man. I love that man, but he. There are some players who really want to simply react to the pitch. They feel that too much information is swirling around their brain. It's going to screw them up. Okay? A lot of guys claim that's true, and it's not true. Willie Mays, for example, I was told by a lot of the guys, was he loved it, and he was great at it. And in fact, it was Wes Westrom who one day, you had just mentioned this to me too, he had, um, I don't remember which game it was, Wes, the day Willie hit the four home runs, Wes Westrom was stealing signs and swinging a towel in the bullpen for him to know. To know. For me, that's actually a credit to a man who has sort of lightning quick hands and also incredible baseball intellect, that you can make that adjustment, that it does help you, you know, because you still only have a, a fraction of a second to be able to adjust. So some of the, you know, Bobby Thompson loved it. He never disputed to me that he loved to know. Um, in terms of your other question, I'm sorry, what was it? Did they do that every Oh, every game. game. Okay, I can tell you this. Um, some guys have said that if they would do it, Sal said this at one point, Sally Vars. That they would that they would do it and then if had a big lead they would stop. From from what I from what I have learned from guys that's not true. They did it and they did it every game. You know they they needed to win these games. And again, one of the things I point out here, and I just feel like saying it again, I was not out to sort of get the Giants. In fact, I bent over backwards to do two things. One, to show the history of stealing of signs that they were hardly the only team doing it. And in fact. Charlie Dressen was a science stealer extraordinaire. Um, so, you know... He didn't use electronics. True. But this was this guy would, was not noted for his, like, great morality, you know, <laughs> uh, by any stretch. Um, in fact, Ralph Branca hated Charlie Dressen and loved Leo DeRocher. Uh, he had them both as managers. So I bent over backwards to show that, you know, that they, had a, they were hardly the only team to do it, and also that it wasn't technically illegal at the time. Just one other example of, of how I tried to sort of do right by the Giants and just do right by the story, both sides, was it bothered me a lot when people said that Thompson's home run was not hit hard, that it was a chip shot, that it was sort of, that it was such nonsense. And the way, here's to show you the degree, the length to which I went to prove that. It landed in the lower deck of the left field stance. Can anyone, does anyone know why that would show that the ball was hit hard? It was a line drive. Because of the overhang, exactly. The overhang was so severe that what I did, there were 204 home runs hit in 1951. I found, with the help of one of my researchers, the location of all 204 home runs. And there were only, I have it in here, it was only like three or four out of 204. Landed on the lower deck in left field. He killed the ball. And the other thing that was important for me to show, 
was that Branca, even though for a stretch he was truly a great pitcher, not just 1947, he was an excellent pitcher, and until Dressen totally overused him that year, he led the league in ERA that year. He was an amazing pitcher that year. And then Dressen, he was an idiot, he wouldn't pitch. He wouldn't pitch. Yeah, he didn't know what he was doing. He really was not a smart pitcher. He had a huge ego. One sec, I just want to say, um, and, um, wait, I just want to tell you one thing. What was I just saying? How hard it was How hard it was to all the home runs. Right, sorry, give me one second here. He's the young Yeah, so the influence of the There you go, thank you guys. Anyway, I'll think of it in one second. He was overworked. He was, I'll think of it. Anyway, so. Email us. I'll email you. Yeah, sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. You asked the question about the science theory. Didn't Mueller hit five home runs in a doubleheader and nine yeah. for the whole season? Yeah, that's right. And he got there. Yeah, that was actually something that um, it was interesting. That was the only time in the season when they almost got caught. Um, Dressen had been, um, it's amazing. You guys will remember this better than I have. I'm like now dealing with Roe versus Wade and my own story. And I haven't like looked at my book as closely. But no, not at all. And um, But it was interesting. Dressen had been kicked out. And it was Cookie Lavagetto who was managing the team on this particular day. And he says, something is going on in this day. He brought out binoculars and looked out to center field. I had a bunch of the guys remember this to me. And the whole plate umpire threw him and his binoculars out of the game. Wow. So they, it was amazing. It was, you know, one of those things that happened. Threw out Cookie, and Cookie said, you know, this is not fair. But then that was the only time they almost got caught. It's very interesting the gentleman brought up the five Mueller home runs. Yeah. Within the last three weeks, and I don't remember exactly where I read it, the writer claimed that was the start of the steroid era because there was no way in God's earth Mueller could hit five home runs yeah. in three days. That's funny. Well, he did. Whatever he was supposedly taking, it's either he's holding the stuff or he's going to blow the whole deal. It wasn't steroids. It was something a little more simple. <laughs> yeah. well, it, it, it may be, but, but it wasn't legal. It was. They used electronics. Well, the I, thing I, is... I stole some signs one day. You could do it without using any electronics. He did that, and he also forged Al Dog's signature on a thousand autographs. That's awesome. Don't get up at home. That's hilarious. The thing is, I had the honor of interviewing Bud Selig, and I and also a few of the other guys in the Yankee, in the excuse me, Major League Baseball front office about this and whether it was technically illegal or not. And it wasn't until '61, I think, that they actually had something in the rules that addressed stealing signs by quote mechanical means. However, what Selig pointed out to me was that there are other clauses whereby, not just in the integrity of the game, other clauses um, that um, would, in fact, have given uh, the commissioner the right to say this was not allowed. And, in fact, Ford Frick, which was interesting, who was the commissioner of the game, he went on the radio. He was a rookie commissioner. He went on the radio about an hour, a half an hour after Thompson hit the home run. And he went off on this whole strange thing that made me think, and I talk about this in the book, that he heard rumors about this. He went on this strange defensive rant that if anything was ever shown to not be on the up and up, I would forfeit it. Like, no one asked you about that. Why the hell, why the hell are you talking about this? So it was interesting. And in fact, the first time the rumors became public was in 1962, when an AP reporter named Joe Reichler wrote a little story about it. He had no details. 
They didn't have the who, what, why, or when. He just basically was like, I think something's going on. And Ford Frick, because this was already baseball's great moment, he said, if it's ever proved, um, I would forfeit the penny. Hmm. That's what he said. It was interesting. You know, so obviously I did prove that they were stealing signs, and they didn't forfeit the penny. You don't do that. Just like what happened with Melky Cabrera, who, by the way, I loved, so I was very depressed Hmm. from when he was on the Yankees. You know, I actually thought it was complicated what they did, how they decided that he wasn't going to get the batting title. Because why is that any more sort of horrible than the fact that Barry Bonds, or, I mean, forget the Giants, don't just pick on Giants, take, you know, Roger Clemens or any of these great players. It's impossible for us to sort of tease out who did what under what influence. So that was an interesting thing. But that's what he said in a, in a, in a simpler time in 1962. Well, Melky, uh, sorry, Melky's the one I believe who volunteered. Said, volunteered but they allowed him to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's almost interesting that the Players Union allowed that to happen because there are a lot of other records that would have gone by the wayside if it's just about steroids. Yeah. A lot of other records. This is a totally unrelated question. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Was Melky el- technically eligible to play in the World yeah. Series? Yeah. Yes. That yeah, that's amazing. The next orange and black uniform is going to seize with the Orioles. It's about as close as going to get. Yeah. This is not related to this, but it's related to Gary. And I know you love him with Gary. Absolutely. There was a story, I don't know, lost track of time, maybe two months ago, that he really didn't have ALS. Oh, I saw that. He had concussions. Right. And they tried to get the records. Right. There's nobody from the family yeah. living anymore. I guess it's the son of the doctor that treated him, is there? Right. What is your take as a... I read a lot about that because I do love Lou Gehrig and I love reading about him. And my friend, I think you know John and I, yeah, who wrote about it. They actually, there's a lot of literature that has been written about, um, about his medical uh, symptoms. And, you know, there was a lot of backlash <laughs> in the medical community about that, saying that they do believe he had ALS. You know, that's why I said earlier, if you're going to tell people something isn't exactly like it is, I think you really, you have to know what you're talking about. It's very easy to speculate. It's a lot, you know, harder to sort of be definitive about things. But, you know, it's also exciting. A reporter gets his name out there. Maybe that's why they did that. But, I mean, I still think, regardless, he's sort of, you know, a great guy. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess to follow up to that, the people that were primarily involved in leaking that story, putting that out about Lou Gehrig, they're a, from a concussion research center, uh, so they kind of had their own agenda. agenda they might be yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's also a two-part question. Did anybody at any point in time in the press say, where's Franks? What's going on? What's he doing? No, and I'll tell you why. Because my book dealt in great detail with that. So, for example... I point out, you know, that he's not visible there. The most damning thing, which is sort of shocking to me, in 1951, again, I used to know the the exact number, but something like uh, 15 newspapers in New York City covered the team. I mean, they were covered like we can't even imagine nowadays by newspapers. Now we have bloggers and stuff like that. But they were truly covered. And all of a sudden, magically, on July 20th, Herman Franks is not coaching third base anymore. Now, I read... Every article in the 15 newspapers that were written, and not one person wondered why Herman Franks is not coaching third base anymore. That's shocking to me, but they didn't. So when I sort of just laid out the 15 or 20 things, oops, that's my father on his way to Israel. Hold on one second, everybody. How's this? Tell him we say hello. Hey, Dad. Hi. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a talk right now to a bunch of people who who rooted for the New York Giants against your beloved Dodgers. So I can't talk right now. 
He said he sends his respects, but he's still sad. Um, anyway, Nisiyatama, have a great trip. Have a wonderful trip by day. That's fine. Where was Herman on the road, though? They didn't, they didn't, she, they didn't steal signs. So. No, I know, but where was Herman? Oh, did he? Um, what did he do? You know what? He did coach third base. So there you go. Absolutely. Yeah, so there you go. Anyway, they didn't, they didn't go into it. The second part of my question was, did Horace Stone know what was going on? I don't believe so. I really don't believe so. Um, You know, one of the weird things, though, also, like, there's a beautiful, beautiful um, team photo that I love, and I'll show it to you in the book here. And it was taken, you know, I think three or four days before Thompson hit the home run. It's a beautiful shot, and I had always wanted to find an original so that I could have a nice quality... 51, a few days before Thompson hit the home run. And what what is remarkable, I wanted to find an original so that the photo would look nice in the book. And I got the original, here it is, and I could not believe what I saw. Um, the original, which was not cropped, like the famous shot that you see everywhere else, showed them standing in front of the clubhouse. Here it is. And I'll pass it around. And there's a hole cut in the wire mesh. This oh, yeah. is... Yeah, you see that? On page, right before uh, page window. 81. Yeah, yeah, I see it. I mean, you got to have a good microphone. But, but in my original copy of it, you could see this unbelievably clearly. And okay, so, so, like, there were hints all along, but people didn't... <laughs> the first one or the second? second? No, you window. see it? Second. You can see the hole, not the second one. No, no. no. Here. It's, look, it's this, it's this window. Yeah, right there. There's a hole. You see the bottom of the hole. That's the one that's a little clearer. And yeah, but but it helped them, so they cut a hole. Yeah, and the it's amazing to me that you were there. Any other questions? You said this stuff started in August that July. July. Is that the reason for the Giants' resurgence when they were so far behind in general? Well, one of the things that was really interesting is if you look at the statistics, which I really go into in great detail. It was not their hitting that took off during the stretch. The it was their pitching. And so you would say, well, what the hell is that? And that just shows that I didn't have a horse in this race. I'm just telling you what happened. Yeah, so it's fascinating. Further, uh, if this thing did, uh, had such great results, why did it take till the bottom of the ninth inning? Why didn't they win the game big? Why did they even lose the second game? Of the well, like anyone knows, even if you know what pitchers come in the batting practice, you still have to hit it. It's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, look, what I would say to you is this, I would imagine it does help, because A, why did teams go to great lengths to do it, and it is hard to ignore the fact that they did start winning at roughly the exact time that they did this, but, again, it was their pitching, not their hitting that took off, and they are hardly the only team that's done this, so obviously, I mean, even now, every few years, there's some rumors of something that comes up. Yeah? Has baseball ever officially recognized the science stealing? Yeah, yeah. After my article came out, I think it was Joe Garagiola Jr. who was there. Well, he was like senior VP of some administrative thing, and he commented on it publicly. A few of the people did, but you know, again, it's hard for me to say this strongly enough. Really, what interested me was a, was a simple question: Is it easier to privately suffer and be called the goat? And, excuse me, publicly be called the goat and privately not feel good about yourself. That's Ralph Branca. Or is it easier publicly to be the great hero 
and privately not feel good about things. And that was Bobby Thompson. And I don't think either one is easy, to be perfectly honest. The thing about Bobby Thompson is, literally out of the entire team, he was the most like morally rigid man of the whole team. One of the great exciting things for me was, after he retired... He wanted to just become a working stiff. That was his phrase. He said, I wanted to ride the subway every day. I wanted to go to work. His brother was a fireman. You know, he, he was born in Glasgow. He had like this tough Scottish propriety, right? That's what he wanted to do. He easily could have cashed in on his name and just gotten some job in a front office, something I'm going to do with baseball. He had offers. Branca was the opposite. Branca wanted to work in baseball, and it was harder for him to. He had a chance to coach a college team, and he didn't take it, and always held out for hopes that he'd be in professional baseball, and it never happened. Anyway, Thompson... He had intellectual father-in-law. Yes, he did. A son-in-law. No, Oh, Mulvey, exactly. That's right. Mulvey and the son-in-law, Bobby Valentine. Um, What ended up happening with Thompson then, what he did was, he really didn't have confidence that he was smart. This bothered him tremendously, and I'll tell you an interesting story. First of all, he was very smart. And what I found, what I wanted to mention to you was, he went to a, um, a career counselor. Can you imagine nowadays, like, Bernie Williams being like, I'm not sure what I want to do, I'm going to go to a career counselor? <laughs> I mean, that's hilarious to me. You know, that any guy who had $100 million, well, he went to a career counselor. He went to a center in New Jersey, and it was two PhDs who interviewed him, and they wrote up a long report assessing his personality, his intelligence, everything. And I got this report. I had to have his permission. He had to write a letter to this place to release the report to me. He didn't even want to see it. I ended up giving it to him. He finally took it. And they, and I write about it in here, they stressed over and over and over that what he cares about is, quote, doing the right thing. That was the very, that was what he cared about. So, whereas a guy like Herman Franks, not only did it not bother him that the Giants were stealing signs, he was unbelievably proud of me. He's like, the hell with it. All of you guys are idiots for not noticing that we're doing this. You're doing it too, etc., etc., etc. Thompson, of all the guys to become the hero, it bothered him a little bit. What I want to say that was very interesting, I, didn't, I wanted to do right by these two guys, Thompson and Branca, who opened up their lives to me. And I, and I told them, I never let them see the book before I came out, but I went over in great detail, chapter by chapter, what was in there. And I said, if there's anything that really bothers you, please tell me. And if I can, I'll take it out. Well, there was something that bothered Thompson. Nothing about the stealing signs. Put it in, put it in, put it in. He asked me to take out one thing. And then I'll tell you the amazing thing that his sister said to me at his funeral. So the one thing that bothered him that he asked me to take out, this is amazing. He, I got his, um, his transcript, again with his blessing. Branca let me do the same thing. Of all of his school years elementary school, high school, he didn't go to college. And he was a pretty good student. And by the way, I, sh- I want to mention, in the, in the report of those two PhDs, they had his IQ, in, his IQ there. And it was well above average. And I showed that to him, and he wouldn't believe me. I said, I didn't make this up. Look, it's right there. You are literally, by objective you know, criteria, well above average intelligence. He had some learning disabilities, and so he sort of, he knew that it was hard for him maybe to like osmose information by reading a lot, but he was very smart. He had a very high IQ, and that was another thing that made me feel good for him to like, to hammer that home and tell him that while he was still alive. Anyway, what he didn't want in the paper, in the book, was a related thing. One semester, in his elementary school, his grades were horrible. 
he, he got D's and F's and stuff. And it was a humiliation for him because he wasn't allowed to play ball one semester. As a result of that, he had to sit out. Now, what I looked at this, and it, I'm looking at this, and I'm like, why did he go from B's to this and then back to B's? And I realized his father died just then. Like, just then. His father died, and then he... And I told this to him. I said, you've been upset about this for 50 years, you know, 60 years. Look, you have a really good excuse. Your family life fell apart. That's no excuse. I should have still done well. I'm like, Bobby, give yourself a break, right? And even though I would have mentioned at great length in here that it was because his father died, and I mentioned it a little bit, he wouldn't even allow me to write that in the book. So, you know, all of us, we're all human beings, the things that um, are embarrassing to us, you know, are often things from our childhood. And that's what really bothered him. His sister got upset about something else. She came over to me at the funeral. Um, here is a, uh, I have also, this was, um, if you want to, you can, I don't know if you're interested in this, this was the memorial from his funeral, the program from the memorial. His sister came over to me and she said, you know, there was something in your book that really upset me. And she'd been very nice and helpful to me throughout the book and I could see she was angry at me. And I said, what did I do? What? And I mentioned in the book that her parents gave, that her mother gave birth to a child seven months after they got married. And what I did, I pointed out the fact that, you know, they were together and she got pregnant and then and then the man did right by this woman. He married her, and then they lived, you know, pretty happily ever after. But that really upset her, even though um, Bobby was very happy to have the facts of the family put down. He had to go to Glasgow to get his birth certificate. He didn't know exactly where he was born or all that stuff. So yeah, he didn't have his birth certificate. So anyway, you know what? A lot of people have come a long distance. Yeah, that's number one. I remember this reminds you of the meetings I do in Arizona when you got to take a nap and they want to go to the pool. Gary Mintz, you're gonna have a tough time <coughs> coming up with something after this. You, in fact, you know what? You'll come to the next meeting also. <laughs> I'd be delighted. I'm going this to is out. unbelievable. <laughs> Last question. And 